Welcome to Property and Investing with Grant and Charlie, the place where we give you access to all the strategies, tools, and tactics to become a successful a property investor. Charlie, I think we've forgotten to tell Aaron that it is Dark Shirt Day. I forgot to put that on the oh, email. This is he was on the list. It's like a mandatory <laughs> must wear a dark tone shirt. But that's okay, Aaron. I suspect you are the type of person that likes standing out. So if you like standing out, you can head over to propertyandinvesting.com forward slash newsletter. Put in your name and email and be one of those property investors that is standing out of the crowd. We'll let you know every single time we drop <laughs> one of these episodes. Smooth as silk. Let's cue the disclaimer. It's Charlie here from Property and Investing, and I need to let you know that Grant and I and the Property Investing team are in no way, shape or form qualified to give you financial advice. We strongly encourage you to seek out and use professionals when comparing investment products or making investment decisions. All right, Grant, I always have to take a moment to recalibrate after your glorious <laughs> intros. I really do. They're getting better and smoother as time progresses. Uh, the one thing is I'm starting to get more messages about people explaining how much they love the intros more than the content of our show. <laughs> so I might even consider that we'll just do another show, which is just Grant's intros. Right? Just trash intros. <laughs> there's, I'm for there's, a, there's enough to, to piece together to make a podcast out of somewhere along there. Probably. Well, at least someone thinks I'm adding value. Thanks, Aaron. All right. So to set this one up, today we are joined by Aaron Wybrow. Again, the man, the myth, the legend, the uh, borrowing superstar and guy I continually lean on for my own borrowing, I will mention. Um, Aaron, it's so good to have you on the show again. It really, really is. Now, I've brought you in for a really specific weekend. Oh, sorry, reason. Not a specific weekend. We can, we can go for a weekend too. <laughs> say, I'm, it's a I'm, bit I'm early, it, but, but we'll go for let's it. Let's do it. But one of the things I've been looking at in myself for my own situation when it comes to property and also something I've been talking to numerous property investors about is playing the forever game when it comes to borrowing. A lot of investors, as interest rates have risen, as they get deeper into the game of property, they actually end up getting stuck. Right? They actually get into a position where borrowing becomes their limiter. It's not that they can't find great properties that they want to buy. It's not that they can't see opportunities or deals they want to go after. It's just that they cannot get access to the lending so they can make those things happening. So I'd love to kick this one off. Is this something you're commonly seeing as well? So uh, as interest rates go up, the buffers of the bank kick in more and more. Um, and then all the other little tweaks that they're doing behind the scenes related to whether it's inflation and the household expenditure measures, uh, any of the bands of income, caps of rental yields and a whole range of other things there's some things loosening some things more tightening but as we keep rising that's getting more and more of an artwork to be able to continue people borrowing depending on their goals yeah wholeheartedly so i do wonder this quite often where it is what are the traps when it comes to thinking about borrowing through the lens of like building a portfolio because I've come across times when it's like, I know what to do to get finance for, let's say, the next property, but there's going to be implications from doing that where it's going to affect my ability to like buy the one after mm. or set myself up to go on a bit of an accumulator run, which is what Grant's doing at the moment. So you. it's got to be quite strategic with what finance he takes on and even, I suspect, the types of properties and assets he takes on as well. 
There's a couple of things related to is there any caps and is there anything like that is where people come to me and they may have just, um, uh, well, I won't say dabble, but there's probably a better word than dabble, but they've gone out and they've just bought a property and then they just buy another property, then they buy another property. And my first question is, what's your goal? Where, where are you going with this stuff? Uh, do you have a plan? Um, Grant, Grant's awesome. He told me he has, he's told me his plan so I can plan the borrowing capacity out. But if you don't have a goal and you're just buying because of the sake of buying, it, it will trap you because you might have saw the, the pretty house and it's got not the right rental yield for you. It's got not the right loan to value ratio on the other properties if you need equity to support it. Um, it might suck all the cash out of your, your buffers and things. So you've got to really know what your goal is. Um, when people come to us and we don't know what their goal is, we're going to be starting to investigate. What is your goal? Where are you going? How How is the cash flow working? How can we make sure you have cash at the end of the purchase so that you can um, weather the storm of any more rate rises? Um, so the, the trap is not being prepared. Can I ask to go deeper on that? Of mm. all the clients you work with, which I know you've got quite a uh, variety now, how many of them come to you with talking past the property they're looking at at the moment, right? How many of them say, look, in the Good next question. 12 months, I want to buy three properties. How can we set up borrowing to achieve that? Yeah, so that that's become more and more of a, a bigger push for us to make sure we're asking those questions. Um, do people come to us without us needing to prompt that question? Not totally. There, there's a few. There's a few like yourself and like Grant, they, you, you guys always come to, to us with a plan and we can map that out. Um, a lot of people that go to the other sponsors of the podcast, um, the, the guys that go over to the Dashdot guys, they come to me with a plan. Um, so that, that really helps. Uh, and then, then we are developing um, some strategies on lending with the clients that come to us directly or they want to do their borrowing capacities first to map it out. Um, the, the staff in my, my office are, are well-versed in asking what's next after their next purchase. They might purchase their own place. They might purchase their next investment property or their first one. And we, we always continually ask what's next, what's next. And in, in preparation for that, um, we run a, run a lot of models in the background for some of our, our borrowers, whether it's um, uh, borrowing inside of um, superannuation where they, because um, we have a disclosure of assets and liabilities, so we're, we're mining that data to help, help the client keep borrowing um, through to um, how's their deposits going, can it stretch over, where are we going, do we need to do one big pre-approval or two smaller ones to be able to convert quickly uh, when they find property. So do people come with a plan sometimes? Uh, do they come with the um, openness and willingness to expand on their goals and brainstorm that? Absolutely. Um, and then there's the people that come in um, who have purchased, say, our, our um, awesome off the plan stuff maybe 12 months ago where they need to have a bit of a, a rescue um, and savior of the contract. I don't mind being a savior occasionally. <laughs> You're my savior. Don't worry about it, Aaron. <laughs> hey, you saved me too quite a few times. I, I like this setup we have here, Aaron. Keep doing what you're doing. One of the traps, like obviously, I'm, I'm accumulating as quick and as fast as I can. One of the traps that I am, am so tempted to jump into, Charlie, is like the extraction of equity on a whole heap of property to go just faster and faster <laughs> and faster. And I can see so many people getting caught in this because it's, it is the easiest way to grab cash and like extract it out to go and buy another property. But holy smokes, does, and Aaron, you can expand on it, does it trash the cash flow of the portfolio to go and support the, the ex 
increased in expense for the interest rates that you'd go and have. Do you see that happen often, Aaron, or is that just someone like me who's just like, nah, how do I just buy more quicker? <laughs> or do you have a lot of those kind of rescues coming through? Well, Can I throw in one more as well? Yeah, I want you yeah, to answer yeah. that one, but I want to throw a layer into this. Okay. You've got that one there that Grant's mentioned about grabbing equity. I'd love to know if collateralized loans oh, play an issue ooh, within this go. as well. I want the spiciness. <laughs> I'm going to say on this, I hope ain't no one cross-collateralized <laughs> I want to know if someone cross-collateralized loans with equity and it's just like... <laughs> Whoa. Um, the horror stories <laughs> are going to come out now. <laughs> All right, go, Aaron, go. It's like we'll get a property from, from WA, South Australia, Northern Territory, Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, and Tasmania, and we'll get the super glue out and we'll glue it together <laughs> to get one big borrowing capacity. So we'll get one big value across the whole country because they all grow at the same rates. The markets don't change in Australia. I don't know whether you heard that recently. Um, and then we just go, that property portfolio, we got like $7 million worth of value. We can lend 80% of that. But we have all the properties stuck together. Yeah. We can only go to one lender. We've got one set of rules and policies. Or the other one, uh, to, to bring it to more of a reality, because um, uh, to, to be transparent, I hate cross-collateralization on residential properties. And if we can avoid it, we avoid it totally, hands down. But is um, people's fixed rates. We've got some really cool, there's some really cool people out there that have got 2024, 2025, and they've got their fixed rate still at 199 or, or 219. But there's oodles of equity sitting in those properties. And the only way to access it is to go back to that bank's policies to try to access it. And what if you can't meet their rules? You've trapped your equity. So on one side of the coin, you're paying low rates and on the other side of the coin, you're going, oh, if I can just get that equity, I can get that next property, but then you're going to have a massive change in your interest rate early. Um, All right, hold up, hold up. I'm going to break these <laughs> ones down because we're getting quite advanced here quite quickly. So for mm. the people listening along at home who are going, all right, I'm starting, I want to understand these traps of where mm. I'm getting uh, stuck with borrowing. So point number one, if you're communicating with your broker, please let them know and develop a plan where you're explaining what you're actually trying to achieve. Yep. I think that's so imperative because there's so many times you can sting yourself if you're not thinking the next move ahead. Number two, avoid cross-collateralized loans like the plague. And I think uh, cross-collateralized loans are when you would have one loan for, let's say, two separate properties or in Aaron's case, mm -hmm. he's mentioned seven here. And the really big insight on that one is that if one of the assets within a cross-collateralized loan was to fall down in value, well, it could actually stop all your borrowing in this case here. It could be the thing that could hold you back from ever getting access to other lending because that one loan has to be with one bank and you've only got one opportunity there. So to go even further than that now, uh, what was your next one there, Aaron? You really had a great point. I've just so it's the um so it's the trapped fixed. equity um when you've got a fixed rate and you want to maintain that fixed rate but you can't manage to meet the uh, borrowing capacity rules or policies of the bank that you've got that fixed rate with. And can that I, can, can I, trap can I pause you right equity. there? Yeah. One second. Grant, did that sting you at all? Feeling any knife shots fired there? <laughs> I feel as though. Did you see that Aaron just looked straight at my soul when he said that? And he was just like, hey, you know that property that you got? <laughs> you can't touch anything. Or that equity? Yeah. No, thanks, Aaron. I think people forget yeah, yeah. fixed rate also comes with other fixed rules, right? They do. They do. The, the, the cross-collateralization thing, just to give you a real example, is um, um, – we, we've all seen on media and different things like that where people go to sell their owner-occupied house where they have, let's say, mum, dad, investor, owner-occupied house. They, um, 
buy an investment property, they go to the bank. Um, so we're going to bash the banks up a bit here. The bank goes, cool, you can just buy that property, no cash in, no no worry about it. We'll just, um, th- there's nothing, nothing you need to do. And on the mortgage documents and things, you've got both your properties. You've got your owner occupied and your investor. So we fast forward down the line and you've got two different splits. So you can see what you currently owe on your owner occupied and you can see what you can owe on your investor. And then you go, cool, I'm going to put my house on the market. I'm going to upgrade. I'm having kids, whatever the personal situation is. And they put the house on the market, they sell their house, and they end up with nothing. Mm-hmm. And what happens is there is that your property, uh, let's go worst case, that investment property sitting in a mining town and the mine shut. Now you've gone into negative equity. So if you've gone into negative equity on one property or you owe more than what it's worth, when you sell your other cross property, you have to rebalance the lending. Mm-hmm. So when you rebalance the lending, that's where you get stuck. And that's where we, we see people on the, on the media or, or they unpack that story and they don't know how they've got into it and all that stuff. And that's where um, to avoid that, get the transparency on what's going on. Like I, obviously avoiding crossing uh, like the plague, but if you are going to enter into it, make sure you've got eyes wide open. Um, no, I'm stepping in. Don't yeah. do it. Right away. <laughs> Don't oh, no, do it no. at all. Yeah. <laughs> like, is it reasonable to say that if you have to cross collateralize loans, maybe you shouldn't be taking the loan? It's like <laughs> possibly. If you smell smoke, there's fire, Charlie. But, that, but that's where the structure comes in. You can actually leave them uncrossed, go after the equity for deposits and costs from your current place and have it strategically line itemed out so you know what it is. Great. And then you segue. go for the prop the loan on the property because it's eligible for its own loan so yeah maybe i did segue but that's the that's the that's the key answer there is that you want to know what your equity has done to purchase the next property because you want to come back and reverse it and as you pay it down you want to then deleverage and split out your your assets so you have more control and the only control you want the bank to have is on you repaying the debt agree the Coming back to that equity play, because that is a trap unto itself, right? Because yeah. imagine all these people that went and extract, and <laughs> I was looking at this, like extracting cash away from the property. So refinancing, getting the equity out as cash to go and buy another property. It just continues to increase the loan to value ratio, which means okay. as interest rates increase, the positive cash flow or the cash flow, uh, the net cash flow decreases on the property, which then unturned means that my borrowing capacity decreases as well, right? as another trap. So it, it's not that it it's just an infinite game of just extract, 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 because there's other consequences that come from it that will just put you into a corner. Definitely. And and that's where um, if you take 20% plus costs out of one property and then you get an 80% lend on another property, you're borrowing technically over 100% of the property's value. Yeah. So, so that can be a little bit of a, a risk there depending on the type of property you get. And one of the really cool things to stop traps is to understand where the variability of your income is in your own personal situation. So um, do you, do you, are you self-employed that you can cut expenses or get another customer to help support your portfolio? Um, are you PAYG and you can um, do some overtime, um, get some bonuses, ask the boss for a promotion? Where is the variability? If the variability is 100% solely related on the property, in the upwards interest rate cycle is probably something you're going to have to consider and model out and take into account a way more interest rate increases, even though we don't know what's going to happen going forward, even though for the short term we're seeing them go up. 
you're just going to have to plan that a little bit more. So one of the big questions we always ask is where's the variability in your income? Because if it's just the property, you have to be careful versus if you've got lots of variability in the income, it can be a little bit easier for you to play the game. The, the, the other, the, the trap of the fixed rate is because you don't want to lose that nice low rate, but then you are pushing out your next purchase potentially um, because you don't have the, the deposits. The, the other traps I'm seeing is your personal circumstances. Um, what's, your, what's your living arrangements? Do you have a high owner-occupied debt versus being renting? So that can come in to tap out your borrowing capacity as well. Um, personal debts, credit cards, personal loans, car loans, they tap out your, um, your lending. Like, the pick on a credit card. The limit is used all the time. How many people come to me and go, oh, I, I don't owe anything on my credit card. Why does it have to be taken into account? Well, you can go out tomorrow and buy curtains and whatever for your house and max Without it out. Yep. So, so a lot of banks, some of them are using 33.8% per month of your um, credit card limit. Some are on 42. Some are on, they're all varied buffers on those extra debts that are sitting in there. And if we're looking at borrowing capacity, and I've got a client that has car loans, personal loans, and all that stuff, we, we may need to target those ones to get rid of them to keep your borrowing capacity up. All right. The other one that's a bit of a trap, business debts. Um, uh, we, we heard in the last two years that we all got shut in our homes and stuff. And then when we come out, we get this, um, we get these opportunities to get 10-year loans, um, recovery loans, and cash flow loans and all those things, which obviously are important for your specific goal. So if your goal is business and not necessarily property right now, that could be a great opportunity. But more and more, the business debts, the business cards, the, the shadow mortgages, the car finance, the equipment finance that you have, which may be necessary for different industries, is coming more and more onto the table as you wanting to do personal lending out, outside your, your business. And the other big trap I find wrong lenders at the wrong time or the lender you you need to sequence your lenders so there's some lenders that are really cool with borrowing capacity and then there's lend and they'll still lend to you straight away but you probably should leave them for later on in your investment property journey than taking more restrictive lenders right now where we can jump over the restrictive lender hurdle and we can keep the powder and the gun dry for when you want to take an opportunity for another property later on down the track. Ooh, so can we, can we some, pause there? I'd love to unpack that one a little bit further because I think that's particularly interesting. So you're, sir, and I'm please correct me on this because I don't know what I'm talking about here. This is something where I'd love to learn more than anything. In the idea that there's the big four banks and then there's second tier lenders and there's third tier lenders, right? What you're suggesting is, or again, correct me where I'm wrong, is that you really want to maximize what you can do with the big four because as you start doing third or fourth tier lenders just using those types of lenders can affect your borrowing power where if you wanted to if you use those third or fourth tier options too early that could be something that could actually imperatively slow you down if not handled correctly is that what you're saying there Aaron? It, it's um it's part of it so to unpack that a little bit 
we'll take the lender that I would go to in, in the more extreme, the last extreme. So if you've done all your borrowing capacity with, with using 3% buffers on your existing debt, whether held with a bank or not, you've got restrictions on um, uh, rental yield caps, maybe at 7%, maybe at 6% with some of the lenders. Um, you've, you've maxed out, you capped out, you, you have to put your business financials down if you're a self-employed person versus looking at your, um, your, your director's wages that you might pay yourself. Uh, all that sort of stuff. When we go to these more, ex uh, not extreme lenders, um, I rephrase it, they are actually can be quite cheap to get lending with, is that you can put your full documentation down, pay, pay slips, tax returns, whatever it is. And when you've got other people's debt, say you've got ANZ debt, CBA debt, NAB debt, when you go to this lender, if you paid $2,000 a month to your um, home loan over at ANZ, this lender will just take exactly $2,000 a month, which means that when they're servicing your new debt, the buffer associated with your old debt is lower. So the hurdle to get over is easier. But if you went to this lender first, they're doing your lending at, with, with the 3% buffer over the exact rate. And then if you go to that lender for another debt, they've got to consider their own debt the same way as if you were doing everything with the big four. So if you can not put any of, if you can have all external debt to this lender, this lender will be able to keep you lending. But if you have all your debt with that lender, you're subject to the same restrictions you are with the, uh, with, with say more conservative. And then if you step it back, there's lenders that will take your actual repayment and put a small buffer on it. So if you pay 2000, they'll consider it to 2500, 2700 versus 2000. Then if you step it back even further, we've got lender, a lender that does <coughs> all the lending at all the normal buffers, but they just have a nice little way of saying, if I'm going to have to consider your new lending at say it's five and a half, so we have to buffer it at eight and a half. So if we have to buffer it at eight and a half and you've got a lot of investment lending and we're buffering that at eight and a half from other banks, they're going to allow you to have the interest deduction that we all love on our tax returns to be added back at eight and a half. So if they're judging, judging you at eight and a half, they're gonna give you the benefit of everything else at eight and a half. So as you step back these lenders, you get different things. And the other little thing that I'm finding with professional property investors, which the banks will consider you at three or more properties, is that when, they, when you get up to three or four properties, they're asking for your individual tax return. And it, at the back of your tax return, you've got address, you've got income, and you've got expenses. And what the banks are doing in, in, in the main is that they're looking at those expenses, they're taking the interest, they're, they're taking total expenses minus the interest, minus the depreciation that you get from your tax depreciation schedule. Highly recommend getting that, uh, by the way. Um, and they take off your, um, we were talking before, Charlie, about how many doors you're replacing in your, in your houses. Take off once, once off expenses and they are looking at your actual costs of holding that property. And if you've got really big fees in that, you could have your rent at $500 a week, but your expenses well exceed that, like strata and other things. So the banks are actually looking at your expenses. So to look at the borrowing capacity, so we've got banks that will look at all your expenses and scrutinize it down to line item. And then we've got banks that say, oh, we're only taking 80% of the rent, so we don't care about the expenses. All right, so what you're saying here, Aaron, is that it's not only just the difference between lenders from, let's mm -hmm. say, uh, big four right down to third and fourth and probably fifth tier lenders that have these differentials in how they assess your borrowing capacity, but also the timing, what they're willing to do month on month 
changes. Yep. That's right. right. And how they're looking at things. So, for example, and I don't know if this is true or not, but let's pretend in this case here, you've got NAB and you know what? They're looking at things in a certain way. They're not really digging too deep. And then all of a sudden they go, do you know what? We need to change our lending policy here. The month rolls over and then all of a sudden they want personal tax returns. They want to look at every line item. They want to see how many doors Charlie replaces and then question why he isn't starting a door replacement company with all this work yeah, he's sure. able to generate. I'm an investor. Let's go. It's a curious topic for another time. What are people doing to these doors, Grant? What are people doing to these doors? You could, you Grant, could, you could lock that in. So to take this one further though, what I'd love from your point of view, because you've been in the lending game for quite a while here, in recent times, have the banks become more scrutinous overall compared to previous years? Like are you seeing all of them become more diligent, more obstacles? or is Because uh, I imagine at times it hasn't been this way, but what's your take on things? I think because over the time, it's like um, if I look at the 10 years I've been in lending, like I, I remember um, a few years back, presenting five and a half, five point seven interest rates and everyone was over the moon. How can I get it so low? <laughs> and now we're sitting at five point fives, five point sevens at in some cases and everyone's going, that's that's rip off. Rip How did off. we ever live before? <laughs> I have questioned that, Grant. I have questioned that. <laughs> but but is the actual process they're taking? Like even in it, that example is like are yes you finding no. yep. So yeah, some lenders are being more scrutinous than they normally would and, and some have, haven't really changed much. Well, yeah, you go to I the scrutiny checklist two years ago, Charlie, it was just a blank page <laughs> and now they've got bullet points on it. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've got to go a few more years back than two years. Um, so I, I think the answer is yes. So um, in the last few years, if we go back about three or four years, we had a lot more data sharing between the banks. So as we come more and more electronic, a lot more um, data sharing is coming out. So when they go and check your credit report, a lot of the banks can see how you've been behaving with your current um, debt. So whether you've repaid it on time, when was it taken out, um, how much is owing across all the banks. So a bank that doesn't have your debt, they can see exactly what's going on. So that data sharing has brought more um, transparency to the, to the industry. Before they were, um, there was a period of time where everyone was going through line item, line item of, of expenses, and then they found that the processing time and the efficiencies of getting loans through was was not there. So they so, were looking. So this for was like things. 2018 when APRA made their changes. They mm. became heavily scrutinous there, and then it since re reversed. But now we're in some sort of zone where they are being more diligent again. Maybe they're not to able that to level. see. They're able to see the data. So. Uh, with the with the advance of some of the things that you might hear open banking where um, we can see across all banks on, on different things um, some of the metrics of um, checking or auditing um, between lenders if there's something not so kosher on on a loan application through to the comprehensive credit reporting um, and also looking at um, bank statements and, and different things like that and if you're passing the serviceability quite high there might be less scrutiny than if you're only just scraping through. And on the on the back of that, I'm I'm curious. From you've been in the game for ten years, like obviously you every month you go and see what different banks and how they're going about scrutiny and all those kind of things. Is it becoming more complicated to Charlie's point, or is it becoming more like it, are the banks becoming very different in their way? Where it's like December, I'm going to go with NAB, and you know what, January now yeah. ANZ wants more customers, I'm going to get it with ANZ. Where you're actually now focusing on playing the different banks based on what they're trying to do, as opposed to before, it was just like, well, who's just got the better rate? Yeah, so it's always going to be um, personal situation, policy, and rate, and yeah, okay. we are seeing that the banks are switching. So it could be that 
uh, one bank's come out with a crazy hot rate and their service level's blown out, but we've got a fulfilled contract, so we may not go to that bank. How, that, then, how interesting. Charlie, then, you've, is- then you've got the complexity that um, there's some banks that are starting to change how they look at the household expenditure measures. Yeah. So they, a lot of banks will take your current income plus your rental income and put you in a higher band of where they think you should spend. Now we've got this discussion going on with some of the lenders where they'll take your personal income and look at your household expenditure measure on that versus including your rental income. Um, you've got um, some banks that have living expenses and if you're lucky, if you put kids in private school, for example, some lenders will have a big bucket for your living expenses and some will have a bucket for your expenses, including what you potentially could spend at public school. And then they add your private school fees on top and tap your servicing calculators down too. So it's not just the RBA increasing the rate to crash your borrowing capacity. Um, they crash your borrowing capacity with the household expenditure measures, increasing the tolerances on um, credit cards, personal loans, debts like that too. So that's, that's, so, a, that's a key, interesting area. It's so amazing. I have no idea how uh, property investors would go around contacting each bank one-on-one to try and figure out how do they expand their borrowing. And it just makes sense because it's like, what is it, like 75% of all mortgages go through a mortgage broker now? And like just hearing what Aaron's walking through, I'm just like, man, I'm not reading those policies and the scrutiny they're going through to see which banks as of this month is going to actually give me the best borrowing. Like, I, I completely get it. It's so, moving. Charlie, it's moving think, very fast. Like, they think, are changing fast. Like, did you, totally. like a couple of major banks actually increased their rates before the RBA. They snuck a couple of ra- rate rises in before did. the RBA did it. So, that's interesting. The, the calculators, like inflation and rate, is changing the calculators more frequently than the RBA sitting. <laughs> so, Charlie, I'm like... Do we just like focus on trying to earn more and then like screw all these kind of things? <laughs> well, we're getting to that. What I hope is being highlighted here is like you, you've, this is how you tell if you've got a good mortgage broker or not, mm. right? It's mm. uh, Once upon a time, I think it was very easy for me to come to the assumption that mortgage brokers, like they all just have the same access to the same things. Tick and flick. It's who's the better marketing and salesperson, right? It's just a commodity, right? Who's good at marketing? Wow, where's my bias kick in, by the way? Anyway, <laughs> coming through to that, though, you can see with like if, in this case, Aaron is spending a lot of time understanding all the different policies of the bank, someone comes in and goes, oh, this is my situation. He's already got inclination to where he's going to look for yeah. banks and policies of what's going to be appropriate for them. But let's say someone's not doing that and they're just going to the same bank all the time or where they've got good relationships, you might actually get knocked back by a broker because – they're not doing the deeper work of where policy can fit for their situation. And that in itself could be a trap, right? Wrong broker could be a trap that comes to borrowing an insight here. I will move on though, because there's still quite a few questions on my list that I'm very curious about, but uh, I would suspect many people should re-listen to the first part of this episode because all those things you've just listed out, Aaron, would highlight how someone can get stuck in a big way. They, They really would. All right, guys, apologies. There's uh, some technical difficulty here. But do you know what? The technical difficulty is actually property related. So uh, on my street, they're actually doing some developments at the moment. And as they do these developments and they tinker with the NBN and internet and phone systems and all the rest of it, I get discrepancies on my line. So I noticed the uh, Telstra van and the NBN van out on my street this morning. And as I walked past it, I was like, 
totally going to be messing with my internet today. You know, you know what happened as you walked past. You know what the guy said. We're totally going to be messing with that guy's internet today. What's, what time is his podcast? We'll make sure yeah, that we sure. we do it exactly then. <laughs> right. He looks like a podcast. Let's ruin him. <laughs> anyway, uh, appreciate the points that you brought up earlier, Aaron. And I will. Uh, it's probably already through in the last recording. But if someone was to re-listen to that, they are all the ways you can get stuck. And if anyone was going to take one thing from it, it's just highlighting how many different areas you can get stuck in. Totally. You really can. There's all these traps everywhere that you're going to be on top of in a big way if you want to be able to keep borrowing and stay in the game. And it's even highlighting the idea. I know why so many people say that, you know, property is a game of finance with some houses just thrown in. Yeah. Because it absolutely is. Now- uh, in recent times, Aaron, you've actually been uh, very courteous in sending me some fantastic videos explaining my borrowing capacity. And you bring up these spreadsheets and calculators that you have access to and you start playing with these numbers. And there's this one little bar where you have the ability to adjust things and it can greatly uh, change how much borrowing I have. And that's income. Right? Oh, income seems to be this like <laughs> magical thing that when it comes to lending is that if we can increase our income, borrowing uh, can go up. So from your perspective, is that the silver bullet? If someone has the ability to just keep increasing income, is that the trump card? Is that the thing that gets someone through lending? Yep. I had okay. the, and the episode. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> uh, one, one other thing. Um, deposits. Income yeah, and deposits expand. have to come into it. And the deposit could be equity. We, we've explained that. So um, does income trump all? Um, the biggest percentage, like if, if you looked at 100% and you're looking at lending, like 70, 80% of it is income on the table. We can't plug in capital growth. We can't plug in speculations in the future, crystal ball stuff. We can only plug in income and debt and rental income. So that that's a really interesting play if you think about what type of properties you're buying. Um, so income going, uh, if it can increase or have variations in your uh, your employment, or your business to be able to grow. <clears throat> You've got to have that to keep playing the game. But conversely, you have to have either available equity at the costs you wish to um, take on or have cash deposits because we can't really lend 100% when we are going forward into property. All right, we're going to have to pause this one right here because this has come up a few times on equity. I need to mm. dig deeper into this yep. point. So. Uh, the thing I find really interesting is that for a lot of property investors, they feel like equity is just free money they get access to. It's not increasing their debt. <laughs> and it's like, I don't think it works like that. I know there was some great ads by CBA back in the day where it was like, you know, equity made and he's got the oh, boat yeah. <laughs> and all these things. And I feel like it may have taken Australians on a very interesting journey. But just to clarify that, if someone has a 20% deposit, let's say in cash, right, mm. And they contribute that to their portfolio and borrow 80%. I mean, that's pretty clear cut. We understand. Someone yep. put in 20% new capital, 80% is borrowed, deal done. If someone uses their deposit as equity, right? So they grab some equity from another property and they put it into this uh, deal, they've actually borrowed 100%. Correct. Because it's not that they were able to extract cash from one property and put it into it. Like if they sold a property, they may be able to do that. But it's actually a loan against the value of a property and Correct. in turn, that's what equity is. Now, in doing so, yes, I understand some people have access to that, but it's the difference between buying a property on 80% and 100% and in turn changes the cash flow of a property and the income and all the rest of it, which is what actually affects borrowing in that equation. 
That's have right. I explained that well, Aaron? You, you have. So to oh, simplify no. it for you, borrowing capacity equals purchase price, typically. So if your borrowing capacity is only 400 and you go, oh, wait, wait, let's, um, let's get some equity out of the other house and we can make it bigger. Well, you can't because your income's coming out at 400 is your borrowing capacity. <laughs> your equity <laughs> loan has to sit within that borrowing capacity and and even then, it's not if you if your uh, borrowing capacity is four hundred or or even five hundred, you've got to take into account stamp duties and stuff. So even if your borrowing capacity is four hundred, your purchase price might be three seventy five. Totally right. So to go further than that, <clears throat> in thinking of this episode in context, if you are someone that wants to play a, the forever game in borrowing or being able to keep accumulating to be more direct here you really would be wanting to think about this from how can I fund deposits from cash or rents or business or employment so that you're not relying on equity wholeheartedly because that could be something that keeps you trapped and even very limited on what you could create with your portfolio. Oh, absolutely. And and there's a couple of um, probably a couple of positives with that and one word of warning, especially if you have an owner-occupied property and a current debt on that. So um, with... Um, putting 20% down of cash and gen 80% loans, you've got a 20% buffer in there if the market changes due to not seeing what's happening in the future. Um, if you currently have an owner-occupied mortgage and you've got cash to contribute, there's some specific strategies we can do because your owner-occupied property can't, you can't deduct the interest where on your investment properties you can. So there's a specific strategy there, which might be for another podcast, guys, around debt recycling and being able to... Um, manage that owner-occupied mortgage out. Hold that up. Grant, we should write that down. Debt I've got to go. You, you guys keep talking amongst yourselves. <laughs> yeah. so, so cash is good. Cash is good to buy. But if you have an owner-occupied property, get some specific recommendations around how the lending can work um, instead of just dumping cash into properties when, when you want to manage that owner-occupied mortgage out. Awesome. I want to take this to another level then because uh, in what you're – insinuating here is that if we were to buy properties with a, a high yield, right? So let's pretend you mm. have the opportunity to buy a negatively <clears throat> geared asset and you have the opportunity to buy a neutral or positively geared asset. As you're adding properties of that nature into your portfolio, that's going to be a distinguishment on the ability to borrow for the next one. Because if you take on a negatively geared property, that's going to actually reduce your borrowing power because your income is going to be taken up in servicing that existing property where if you were to buy something that's positively geared, it's adding income to your equation and in turn um, adding more income which could add more lending, depending on how much income it is. Well, you're exactly right. So there's the two two categories here. So high income earners may have more opportunities. Um, so um, taking on lots of properties at differing yields or taking on more, more riskier properties or more tax deductibility off your own income properties uh, to help you with your high income could be beneficial, but for it, people in the main that aren't totally uh, aren't really up there, is <clears throat> you may have to do a bit of a sequence in your property purchases. So we spoke before; we can put income on a calculator, rent on a calculator, and debt on a calculator. We can't do anything else. So, and it comes spits out a result of your borrowing capacity. So we might want to go after a slightly higher yielding property for our first, second, third, fourth. But we might then, as we've got other assets to rely on, we might want to change our decision. We might want to play a little bit different. So it's not necessarily always high, high yield, high yield, high yield. Um, it might be a combination of that to be able to rely on those assets to play 
something different as you've got a few under your belt. All right. I have to jump in here. I've been dying to ask this question the whole episode. Go for it. I'm dying for this one. I have someone who's basically said to me that they will only buy very blue chip property. That's their approach, right? And do you know what? I'm not here to argue with their strategy. You look back in time, probably would have done really well, and they probably have, right? So let's pretend that this person uh, has a reasonable income and they were able to, let's say, buy property in Melbourne and Sydney specifically, but everything's been negatively geared. They've been playing that tax game uh, and the rest of it, and they've got stuck at, let's say, three properties because they're just out of borrowing capacity in that nature, right? So yes, they potentially have a high growth rate, but they have a lower yield versus someone who goes and let's say buys uh, neutral and positively geared properties. And let's say they're able to get to like 10 properties, right? So the first person might've been able to buy, let's say three $1 million assets and then got stuck. That's all they could go. But the second person was able to, let's say, get to 6 million because of the nature of the income that comes with it. Aaron, who wins? Because even if your growth rate was half of what the other person has, but you've got the cash flow to come with it, I feel like there's this missing component of when people talk about growth versus yield properties, they forget volume and what you can do with volume with higher incomes. So from a borrowing perspective and what you see, have I just found the, you know, the secret, the holy grail of how to win this game of property by thinking about it in a different lens? It's not oh, growth yeah. versus yield or <clears throat> That's right. volume. And also personal goals as well. But you've hit the nail on the head from a mechanical point of view looking at those two, two different um, borrow, uh, property investors. The first property investor has the capital growth. So you, we just spoke about equity. So there's lots of oodles of equity, but they've got a lower yield. So how do they get access to that equity to keep going? And the property, the property investor that has the the, the mix of um, higher yields and more properties. They they have a whole range of other decision sets that they can come into it related to um, their their yields off their properties can access more income uh, or equity. No, access more income. It is more income to access more equity. Um, and both of them, if they've got more than one property, both of them will have the ability to sell down a property to be able to then recycle that into another property. And, and that could be, if we look at current situations and we look at their next steps, the first person that has the lower yield and lots of blue chip properties may have to contemplate and think about their goals about maybe getting rid of a low yield property to get a mix of something different. And the person with the high yield properties may have the asset position to rely on to maybe go and buy that guy's um, low-yield, high-growth property, <laughs> right? We, we, so, so I'm just linking them together. Maybe there's a way that we can benefit each other here. <laughs> That's fantastic. I, I tell you what, I'm going to forget the old idea of growth versus yield then. It's really <laughs> in context of volume because this is what I've been very curious about with uh, particularly this crowd of very blue-chip investors because I haven't been able to work out how they get the borrowing unpacked to get a portfolio big enough where it would actually make so substantial a difference that they can achieve many of the goals that are out there for investors or it would be very slow. The, the thing that I think about on the other side is the continu continuity slash progression to the goal, <clears throat> right? And so for me, when I think about it, uh, coming back to your point, because I've got neutral properties, which are basically negative cash flow that just have cash in offsets to kind of neutralize it so that I can continue to go, which is the continuity layer, or I think you call it the volume layer, Charlie, where I just look at that and I'm like, how can I continue sort of pushing up towards 
the outcome that I'm going, but then to what Aaron, what you were saying, the borrowing capacity just disappears. Like you, you just hit this point at which I go, well, when can I retire on this? Or when do I just need to continue working in order for me to justify the potential of buying another one or just realize I've, I've tapped out and now I just need to keep earning in order to pay down negative gearing. Uh, I've, I've got a secret about rental yield. Did like, you know I can make every property cash flow positive? Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Leave a big deposit. Absolutely. <laughs> cash, I was going to say I cash and offsets, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I am of the belief, Aaron, correct me this one as well, cash in an offset account, the bank doesn't take into consideration as it being in the property because it's so liquid, you could just take it out. <laughs> you would actually have to put that money into the loan and refinance it if you wanted to that to be consi- in, put into consideration. Uh, absolutely. We. Th- this is the other, if we want to look at the other trap is when you have, um, let's say you've got a couple hundred grand owed on a property and you've got a couple hundred grand sitting in your offset account. Um, we go to the bank and we go, cool, we have no no debt. And the bank goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. You've got you a got limit debt. of 200,000 there. Oh, no, 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 mate. It's it's all cool. It's all offset. It's all fine. No, no. The, ba- the bank rules are we've got to take that $200,000 limit, whack it into liabilities, and then we're going to ask you where your deposit comes from, and then you're going to go, "Oh well, I was going to use my offset account for that." <laughs> it's, it's it's the exact same, it's just, it's the exact same approach as a credit cards, right? Yep. So it's just a the, giant credit card. It's right? a giant credit card. Yeah, <laughs> I got I got, right. I got the credit, and yeah, I'm just like, but I, I haven't spent it yet. And yeah. just for context, I am not against blue chip properties. I have some myself. I just think there has to be a layer into thinking about like mix, right? If you're going to go and build a big portfolio, it's like too much of anything could be dangerous. I think too much high yield without any growth is super dangerous as well and not very tax efficient. You're, you're, you're right. And this is, this is where um, does, does, do, do people have to stay stuck in their borrowing capacity um, lending? Like it, it, you, may, you may have a... a well, I try not to say no too much. I, I want to say it's a not yet. Because if we put it out there, time heals or wounds. Wait a minute. Time heals or borrowing capacity issues. <laughs> all right. I'll, get, so, I'll put that on a T-shirt for you. Yeah. I, I, to say, I think we've just found a T-shirt. <laughs> okay. That's so good. It's a T-shirt. There you go. Um, so if you look at time, <laughs> income changes upwards, generally speaking. Rental income increases upwards, generally speaking. Debt may be paid down if you took that approach. Um, values of properties increase. So over time can, can help heal or borrowing capacity issues. Leaning into that, is there a case for the idea if you're playing the long game as a property investor then? Does going slower offer any advantage when it comes to lending? Because as you're mentioning here, you might have a property that is negatively geared that eventually becomes positive and that would be a plus for borrowing. Like is speed a huge factor in being successful when it comes to borrowing? Oh, well, there's his, his two little key points on that too. So, well, no one has a crystal ball. We've got an upwards rate interest rate cycle. We've got inflation. We're getting rammed down our throats. All the bad things about property at the moment, if we turn on the news, um, I think I heard one of the episodes in one of the podcasts about you, Charlie, with the remote um, uh, and, and going off about something. I think it was super or something like that. Um, so no one has a crystal ball related just to what imagine we... Just me like this. <laughs> like this <Aaron>. just <laughs> so it can, going slow and steady can manage the risk and control. But the alternative is true. So if we look at your property journey, Charlie, one of the things well before you executed getting your properties 
and maybe indirectly you were preparing yourself, right? So, so there was probably many, many years before that to, to pay down your owner occupied, um, have, have the deposits. So even well before of an execution of a speedy property acquisition that you did, you, the preparation was still going slow and, and keeping lending healthy. It's just that your goal was that we could execute quicker. Mm. So going slow can control and no one has a crystal ball. Or if you're preparing yourself for, for the um, quick acquisition, that's, that's pretty cool too. That's the accumulator run. Woo! It is Love so it. much fun. I'm that's not going to lie. That could be another the accumulator t-shirt. run is just like beautiful. But that's such an interesting point in itself. It's like if you have a year where let's say you're not acquiring a property but you're paying down debts, refinancing properties, getting rid of credit cards, making sure you're with the right uh, lenders, getting your property team together, making sure that you've got the right people, you're actually doing a lot to drive the progress of your own property investing journey, it just doesn't represent itself with number of properties. Completely. It's a, it's a different Aaron. scorecard. Yeah, we we can't, well, the instant nature is not there when we're talking about property. We can't just go over to good old Harvey Norman, buy um, a TV, take it now when we don't have the money in the bank account, throw it on the interest only. With property, you've actually got to prepare yourself. You can't just, just go out and do it. You've got to get get prepared, get your goals right. And, and when you have that right, then we can map out your lending. We can be ahead of the curve. Whatever property you're going to buy, we can be ahead of the curve, making sure that we're contacting your right spot, making sure the team is well communicated to in the back end with you guys or clients CC'd into it so that we can just hammer it out, make it a little easy. It's never not stressful buying property. I can say that there's, there's some stress, there's some pushing around, there's Hours on the bank on my side, uh, but yeah, we can. We, there's never no stress, but if we can prepare it and get ahead of the game, we work well. That's what makes it fun, right? It's got oh, to yeah. have some uh, excitement about it. Yeah, <laughs> ever seen a movie without excitement? Ah, <laughs> oh, be boring. I was I was sitting on the couch with my lovely wife Hazel drinking tea. Going, ah, Aaron's got that problem. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, this is completely fine, guys. I'm going to wrap this one up. This was awesome. Uh, a lot of extremely valuable things coming through. Um, I th- it's fascinating. I think as you start thinking about your property investing journey, just trying to understand like the traps and the pitfalls before you make those decisions. It's almost like the questions that you need to ask yourself before you go and make a decision are like the most important ones in order to continue borrowing Absolutely. over and over. Thank you for coming on the show, Aaron. Massive appreciation. We will round this one out from here. If you are not already, get on the email list. Where is the email list, Grant? How do they do it? Head over to propertyandinvesting.com forward slash newsletter. There is a great input field for your name and a lovely input field for your email. And you can just click that button and we'll notify you every single time we drop one of these episodes. Thank you very much. And we'll catch you on the next episode.